Music is a powerful force, and scientists tell us that in music, uh, the, music stimulates more parts of our brain than any other human activity at, at once. And a child in the womb begins to develop an auditory system by 17 weeks. Recently, there was research done by Sheila Woodward. She's a South African researcher, and she wanted to know more about musical sounds in the womb. So what is the baby hearing? Right? So fascinating. Does it sound like what we're hearing? What's happening? She was a young scientist, and she was pregnant, and uh, she wondered what music her own child was being exposed to before birth. And so in her studies at the University of Cape Town, she worked with the Institute of Maritime Technology, that just sounds legit right there, uh, to adapt an underwater microphone. You following this? So they, they invent this underwater microphone so it could be placed in the uterus. Ladies, how would you like to volunteer for that? Okay. <laughs> Uh, Her team came up with a tiny waterproof hydrophone, just a tiny microphone, two inches long. The doctors found it safe enough to put inside the womb. The mic recorded exactly what was audible inside the uterus as Woodward played music. She would sing herself, and then she would have the mother sing. The big question, she says, was, does music really exist in the womb, and is is it different? What are the differences from the way that we hear it in the outside, quote-unquote, outside world? Though the sound was slightly muffled, which makes sense, Woodward's team found that when music is played, the fetal heart rate becomes slightly elevated. Woodward says it was clear from the baby's reaction as if to say, something happened and there's now music playing. Other studies have shown us that even if only the mother is hearing the music, if she has headphones on and it's the music that she finds soothing, then the baby's heart rate lowers while the mother is listening. If the mother finds a certain piece of music stressful, the baby's heart rate goes up. So the child is echoing the mother's response to the quality of music. Is that not amazing? Music is powerful. I watched a preview I haven't seen the film yet, but a friend at dinner last night said, hey, you got to see this film. It's about the effects of music on the elderly, many of whom uh, have had Alzheimer's and really have shown no uh, verbal or even really motioning in any kind of response to relatives, loved ones, really no response at all for many months. And so this particular researcher, and again, I watched like a three-minute uh, uh, trailer for it, and I'm already like in tears just watching the, the trailer, and because what happened was he decided that he wanted to know what music that person, that elderly person, loved when they were young. And so did they grow up in the 30s or the 40s or the 50s, and what music were they passionate about? And so he went and found some of that music, put it on the iPod, put the the headphones on, and they began to see responses from these people. Some of them, it was just miraculous. So even in this three-minute trailer, you see this man go from really non-existent to verbally trying to sing the words and tears rolling down his eyes. Why? Because music is powerful. Music is powerful with our memory, right? I, I, I... cannot even remember my own address uh, a lot of the times. In fact, we have some friends that bought our old house, and they're still getting new mail from, for me because I'm giving out my old address, right? 
our memories are affected. Many of you, you can't remember your best friend's birthday or your bank account number, but as soon as you and I hear Adele sing, hello, it's me. I was wondering if after all these years, what? You like, yeah, you know that. Don't act like you don't know that song. Come on, that's Adele. Because it's put to music, all of a sudden, it, it, it affects parts of our memory that uh, on a normal interaction we tend to forget when it's put to music we remember music is powerful and here's the point this morning is that the psalms in the scriptures are equally as powerful the psalms as you know are songs it's a collection of songs and the psalms are not just powerful because it's music it's powerful because they are prayers that we voice They give voice to the things that you and I want to say to God. A third of the scripture, if you're to grab your Bible and you're to grab a third of it, maybe something like that, maybe a little more, a third of the scriptures is poetry. Of that third, much of it is music. I love graphs, and so I found this graph. If if you're not, that doesn't help you, then just ignore this, but I love this. And the reason that the Psalms are so powerful, again, is not just because it's music, but listen to me, most of Scripture is God's words to man. Does that make sense? God is speaking to us. The Psalms actually are primarily our voice back to God. So it's our words and our response back to God. That really is like no other place in the Scriptures. There are 150 psalms. They're broken up into five sections or five books, and each one of those books ends with a doxology, an ending verse that wraps up that book, and the books are primarily centered around a theme and kind of have a a parallel, if you will, to to, to Old Testament books, and you'll see that on this graph. They were written in a span of a 1,000 years, and so it wasn't just like, hey, you know, in 20 or 30 years, a bunch of these songs popped up, and they became popular, and so we gathered them together. Over a 1,000 years, these were prayers and songs sung and prayed by the the people of God. Uh, There are 10 known authors. There are many uh, psalms that are anonymous. We don't know who wrote them. David wrote 70 but we think 73 of the Psalms, but actually there are two more that are referenced in the New Testament that could be attributed to him. And so most scholars believe uh, that he wrote uh, 75, so that'd be exactly half. David wrote just about half of the Psalms. The Psalms are not just groundbreaking because of their musical power, which we've already said is, is strong. Uh, it's not just the hymnal of the Bible. Um, they're our words responding to God in prayer. And so, if you would, grab your, grab your Bible, Psalm 63. Psalm 63. Here is my hope for you and me this morning. Is that this psalm, and really the psalms in general, but catch me on this, that this psalm would be a road map. So remember old school, when you go on, on road trips, you pull out the big atlas map? Some of you are like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, you, no, well, I'm old enough to remember a map, right? The psalms serve as a road map for us. Some of you will come in, come in here this morning and leave, and, and if you were honest with me and yourself, and I, I, this is me, by the way, I don't know how to always pray to God. I don't always have the words to pray. When I'm praying for a brother or sister who's struggling or who's facing 
a brain tumor as our dear friend is in our church. And I just go, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't have that kind of language. The Psalms serve as a road map. I pull out that map and I begin to pray the Psalms. So my prayer for you and I this morning as we dive into Psalm 63 is not just that you and I read this, but that we understand its context and that we begin to sing it and to pray it. Okay, so Psalm 63. If you look at the subheading just below where the, the uh, just next to the 63, doesn't matter what translation you had, have, it should say a Psalm of David. So we know David's the author when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And so the question that you and I need to ask is, what's he doing in the wilderness? He is the king at this point. What is a king doing hanging out in the desert? So before we read it, Let's take a look. Put that, uh, put that chart up for me, Chris. So David and Bathsheba, you know the story. I don't, have to, I don't have to rehash that. Adultery, betrayal, deception, murder, the loss of a child. David's life is just thrust into chaos because of his own sin. Many of you may not know what follows. In the decade that follows, the chaos and the turmoil within his own family continues, and this shows us why. Amnon is one of David's sons. Amnon assaults Tamar. That's one of David's daughters. So brother assaults the daughter. It's horrific. Another brother, Absalom, finds out about this, and he's furious, and he kills his brother, Amnon. These are David's kids. Absalom, after murdering his brother, flees uh, in, in fear that they're coming after him. About three years pass. Go to the next one, Chris. So Absalom comes back to try to hopefully see some restoration. Is he seeking forgiveness? We're not uh, entirely sure, but David refuses to see him. He's not ready to, to, to confront his son on this. He's, he's uh, understandably just in sorrow. And so two years pass, and bitterness starts to creep up in Absalom's Life And he begins to plot against David. I'm going to overthrow my dad, who is now the king. I'm going to step in, and I'm going to seize power. So not only has he murdered his brother, he's now plotting against his father. And that goes on for four years or so, and then he starts to make his move. He's got a little army together. They start to uh, uh, pursue David, and so David flees, and he's got some supporters, uh, some family, probably a small army, some uh, security around him, and they escape to the wilderness of Judah. So what's David doing in the middle of the desert? He is fleeing his son who's trying to murder him. Right, This is not uh, one of his better days as he starts to pen and then sing Psalm 63. Let's read it together. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your, ring, in your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. 
But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for the jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Our prayer is that God would speak to us through the scriptures this morning. This is the word of the Lord. There are two questions as I'm studying this week that I probably should have the answer to. I've spent a lot of my life leading people in worship, leading people to praise God. But two questions really started to creep up as I read this psalm. Number one, what is praise exactly? What does that mean? I mean praise and worship, are there differences there? What does that mean? Number two, how do I do it? Music seems to be a powerful part of that, but how do I actually go about praising God? So it's two simple questions. Number one, what is praise? We're going to define it like this. It's to treat God as glorious and as great as he actually is. And so to praise God is to, is to say, you are great, you are glorious, you are good, and I'm coming to you and praising you, and it's not for anything that you can do for me, although you can do great things for me. I'm not petitioning you at this point. I'm just saying, God, you are great, and no matter what happens in my life, I'm going to praise you. Are you tracking with me this morning? Okay? So that's praise in light of Psalm 63. Tim Keller says it like this. Religious people will pray. They confess seeking forgiveness. They petition seeking help or things, but rarely do they praise because praise is wanting God just for himself. Adoration is loving God for who he is, not just for what he can do for you. Most of my prayers, to be quite honest with you, just tend to go, God, help me. God, help this brother, help this sister. God, help my family, keep us safe. God, uh, I need this from you. We need you. There is a place and time for that. That is the right place to go. Praise, though, really is to say, no matter what happens in my life, no matter if, if times are fantastic or times are chaotic, I'm going to say, you are glorious and you are great and you are good and it's not about what you can do for me in this moment. And so if that's praise, how do we do it, right? So the next question I'm just asking is, what happens here? How do we praise? And I want to look at Psalm 63. I think we'll have a quick guide. Again, this roadmap as we open this map. How, how do we praise you, Lord? 63 gives us some really great insight. David does as the author. And so let's dive into it. Number one, we get specific. Again, it's not just me saying, God, thank you. Uh, you're, uh, you're a good God. And would you bless this uh, steak and potatoes I'm about to eat? Amen. Right? To praise God is actually begin to just break down the attributes of God. God, you've been faithful to me. I've been wayward. I have, I've run from you, actually. You've pursued me. God, you've given provision that really could only be from you. Anybody else experience that kind of provision? Like Liz and I, just there's a few times, even this month, we just go, that really, that's not, that's not I, didn't, I didn't earn that. And somehow, God, you, you stepped in, you, you provided for us, you were there for us. It's to get uh, specific with God, not just general prayers, but to dive in and be specific. We see that in the psalm, verse 1. I earnest, with great earnest, earnestly I will seek you. My flesh will faints for you like a dry and weary land where there's no water. That's beautiful poetry, but he's actually in the desert. So he's saying, I'm thirsty, but I, I, I'm comparing that to my soul. I'm actually thirsty for you within. I'm longing for you. 
right? It's not just a general prayer. I will bless you as long as I live. That's verse four. You have been my help, and so I will sing for joy. That's verse seven. Your right hand upholds me. That's verse eight. David is getting specific in 63. It reminds me of this. There's an old movie in the 90s, and I'm aging myself. Yes, I am. It's called Groundhog Day. You seen this movie? AK, you seen Groundhog Day? That's a great movie. We got to see this. We'll watch that together. Uh, Groundhog Day is fantastic. Phil, uh, Bill Murray's character, Phil, he's awesome. And he's a weatherman, and he goes to cover the Groundhog Day festivities. You know where the groundhog uh, pops up and does it see its shadow, that whole thing. And he goes to cover it for the news. And so he's reporting on Groundhog Day, but when he wakes up the next day, what happens? He's in this perpetual cycle that Groundhog Day starts uh, over. And apparently, uh, he is the uh, only one who notices that this day has already happened over and over. Everybody else, just a normal day, this day over and over. Well, he starts to fall in love with a woman that he meets at the event. And so he has a dinner with her, and he has this encounter, and he learns more about her. And then the next day, she, uh, he's a stranger to her. He has to start all over. But in the movie, he starts to compile a, a running list in his head. Here are the things that I love about you. Right? You remember this in the movie? And there's this moment in the movie where he says to her, somewhat out of, of the blue, I love you. And she says, you love me? You don't even know me. Right? You remember this? And so he responds with this. He says, you like boats, but you don't like the ocean. You go to mountain lakes in the summer with your family. You love French poetry and rhinestones. You're extremely generous and you're kind to strangers and to children. And when you stand in the snow, you look like an angel. It wasn't just this, I want to offer my praise for you in a general sense. He had this running list that he had been noticing over the course of these days. His love was specific. And so for many of us, you need to and I need to break the routine of just general praise, just generalities. God, thank you. You're good. Uh, Thank you for meeting us. Amen. Let's break the routine of general praise and get specific about who God is and all that he has done. So how do we praise? Number one, we get specific. Uh, Number two, uh, we express David does this in Psalm 63. My lips will praise you, verse 3. I'm going to speak it out loud, he's saying. I will bless you. Again, I'm going to speak blessing out loud, verse 4. I will lift up my hands. If you are ever in here and you see people, what is this? What's going on? We see this in the Psalms over and over. It's not just some random spiritual act. It's really a term of surrender. And David says, I'm going to lift up my hands to you to express my praise to you. I will meditate. That's verse 6. I will sing for joy. He says that in verse 7. I will rejoice in God, verse 11. The Bible gives us specifics of how we can respond to God. Here's a challenge for you. Many of us struggle that our praise of God is really just a passive praise. And I don't just mean in music or in body language, but that is part of it. But your praise is somewhat passive and tentative. It doesn't mean you have to be some crazy charismatic. It just means that you have to somehow move from passive to an active praise. What are some things that I can do to say to God with my body language, with my voice, with the way that I love others? God, I'm expressing my praise to you. More than anything on this list, this is probably one that most of us need to just kind of rest in and go, you know what, God, help me in this. The Bible says play skillfully, play music with great skill, sing out loud, worship with others, 
praise with music and do so eloquently and with great passion. It's why it's so important at BCF that we have musical worship, uh, that it's it's a priority for us. It's not because you and I need a private concert. We can do that elsewhere. We can get that somewhere else, right? But here's what happens when when a musician who is gifted and they play with great skill, and that is uh, really uh, paired with a heart that's turned upward towards God. These two things collide, great skill and a heart that's open to God. It fuels the praises of God's people. And so when you hear an instrument played beautifully, that's not just for your ears. That is to be fuel in the fire of your praise to God. That's a beautiful thing. I think of heaven as just honestly being a bunch of cellos, all right? Just cellists everywhere, just playing. And, and I, love the, I love cello. I also love the trumpet. I don't think they go together. Those are my two favorite instruments, all right? So cello. But I think of heaven as just a bunch of cellists, just a bunch of Amy's, you know? And here's what's amazing about Amy. We've known her for many years, and she's played on uh, albums and just been a part of our church now and uh, has recently moved over here to be closer to the church. Here's what's amazing about Amy. She's one of the best cellists in our city, hands down. Uh, I meet people all the time that go, she plays at your church, seriously? And I'm like, yeah, she does. I don't know. We, I don't know how we talked her into it, but she does. <laughs> Here's what's amazing about Amy, though, is she's not just skilled. That great skill is married with a heart that is open to God and says, I want to I glorify you, God. And so her great skill in the middle of communion now becomes fuel in your fire to praise. Do you see why this is important? C.S. Lewis says it much better than me. Let me just read this. This is a little bit long, but I want you to hang with me here. I think we delight to C.S. Lewis. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. So just kind of track with me for a second. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Are you catching that? So there's a little more to go, but what C.S. Lewis is saying is, if you are married to a beautiful woman, which I am, it is not enough for me to know that she is beautiful in my head. I can't have that thought. It's actually the the joy of being married to that beautiful woman for all these years is not complete until I express it. And I say to her, you are beautiful, outwardly, inwardly. When you walk by, you're graceful, you're strong, you're bold, and These things, when they get expressed, the joy of that is complete. That's what C.S. Lewis is saying to us. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him. Enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Now listen, just hang with me. I'm done here. Fully, well done with this quote. I'm not done with the sermon. Don't Don't be trying to sneak out of here. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. If you want to glorify and enjoy God by you, City Fellowship, take David's cue and express yourself in worship and in praise to him. Get specific. Figure out some ways that you can express that praise to him. Number three, how do we praise? How do we do this? Number three, uh, we compare And so uh, David uh, does this in verse 3, and he says, uh, Your steadfast love, Lord, is better than life, better than living and breathing. Your love is greater than that. 
And again, you have to remember, David doesn't know if he's going to survive this. There's a legitimate army in pursuit of him so much so that he fled the city. And uh, he, he is the underdog right now in this battle. He does not know if he's going to survive this. And yet he chooses to say, you know what? I'm comparing my life, both good and bad. I am still the king. But your love, your steadfast love, your faithful love, your never-ending love, it's actually better than, than me living and breathing right now. And so my challenge as you begin to praise is, and I begin to praise, what are the things in my life that actually have taken precedent that I've said, you know what? Your, your steadfast love is great, but these things are actually better. So the love of my children, the love of my wife, I love them dearly, I adore them, but is their love greater than the steadfast love of God? Is the job security that I have fought so hard to have that you are clinging to, maybe you're pursuing a job, you need a job. Many of you, have just, even this week, just uh, wrestling with a, a, need, a need work. Is that pursuit of job and security, is that actually greater than the steadfast love of God? It's okay to want that and need that, absolutely, but is that greater? Are the challenges that you face, whether they be uh, physical or emotional, are those crises in your life, are they stronger than the steadfast love of God? Here's what David does in the middle of his praise. He just says, I'm going to compare it. You know what? Let's just hold it up to the light. And let's just say, which one's, which one's greater? All of these things in my life that I hold uh, as important, I'm going to hold them up to the steadfast love of God. And so let me just say this, genuine adoration, you'll see this on the screen, genuine adoration and praise of God, it alters our priorities and it places our affections back on the Lord. In other words, you have a list, here are the things I love, and sometimes in my praise, I need to take God who maybe has fallen to number four and say, you know what, I missed it, your love's greater than this stuff. I've had money in my bank account, it's great, I need it, I pray you'd use it for good, but... Even better than that is actually to know that you're with me, that you love me no matter. And so compare. How do we praise? Number three, we compare. Let's keep moving. Number four, we remember and behold. Verse two, David says, uh, beholding your power and glory. In other words, I've seen it. I've experienced the glory. Not just secondhand, firsthand. I've been there. I've been there when you showed up and you did things I couldn't believe you did. That's verse two. In verse six, he says it again. I, will, I remember you every night. So when he says, I'm in my, on, my, on my bed, I'm, when I lay my head on this pillow, I will remember you. Verse five, he, he has these recollections of God and he begins to just compare them to a feast. You lay a table out and he just says, that it's the banqueting table, it's the feasting table. So here's, here's, the, here's the Cyprus version of the banqueting table. It's Shipley's Donuts, right? And so when you go to Shipley's, like, here's the deal. Shipley's is good. Shipley's, is, uh, Shipley's to me is like a six or a seven. If they grab the donut that's behind, you know, the right of the, the rack, it's pretty good. I mean, when they grab that donut, it jumps to 10 when that lady walks to the back and gets the fresh donuts. You ever order that? And you're like, where'd she go? Oh, she's getting the hot ones right now. She's bringing the fresh donut up here. This is about to be glorious. Anybody never tasted a Shipley's donut? We're going to pray for you right now. At the end, just come up. We'll lay hands on you. It's amazing. Krispy Kreme is strong. They got strong game. But when you taste a hot Shipley's donut, 
Here's where I'm going with this. You can have opinions on whether or not that donut tastes good. You can look at it. If you've never tasted that, you go, that looks good. It looks uh, warm. I saw the dude pour all the stuff on top of that thing. I'm going to assume that it's sweet, and I'm going to come up with some hypothesis about what experiencing the glory of that donut might be like, but I've never tasted that. What David does for us, and what I think is a great reminder in this psalm, is he actually goes, no, I've tasted the glory of God. I've experienced God. Not secondhand, not a hypothesis, not I wonder what it's like. I've tasted, and I've seen, and I'm going to remember. Many of you fail to do this in your praise, and i got to be honest, I do as well, where I come in and I just think, God, this week, this is what I have ahead of me. This is what's coming, God. Would you, would you just help me in this? I seek you and what's ahead of me, and as strong as that is, looking back and go, God, you were faithful. Remember that? 2013, 2011, we were in the depths. You were faithful. Last year, I walked in here on a normal Sunday and had uh, an experience with the Spirit of God with other believers that I've never had. And sometimes people just say to me, like, when I come uh, I start crying, and I'm like, I'm sorry. I don't know. That's, that's strange, but I'm sorry. But me too, right? And it's not because you and I just want to get in here and boo-hoo. It's just that when we experience God together, it's powerful. And so when you praise, part of, it is, part of it is looking back on, I remember, I've experienced the glory of God. And so challenge on this, how do we praise? It's to remember and behold God's power, God's glory, and God's goodness. And so lastly, number five, we rest. How do we praise? We, we rest. And so David is in the wilderness. He, he most likely has no reason to think that rescue is going to come for him. He is outnumbered, and he is the underdog, as we mentioned. And he tends to think this could be the end. And so he's singing in the desert. Some of these songs were really more like chants. And if you ever listen to like, uh, like a Gregorian chant, I think it would be similar to that. It's just a powerful way to express. And so David is singing this song. And he doesn't know how this is going to end. His family chaos has reached its pinnacle, no doubt. His very public and undeniable sin has now caught up with him, has corrupted his family and potentially the nation that he is to lead. And yet David begins to praise. He gets specific. He expresses his praise with lyric and with melody. He compares his circumstances, holds it up to the light and says, no, you're, you're better. You're better, God. Your steadfast love, it's better. I want to trust you. He remembers the encounters with God in the sanctuary with other believers. He begins to worship and he begins to recall being in the presence of God. And so now he chooses in light of all of that to rest and where do we see that in 63 in verse 11 he simply says but the king shall rejoice in God he is the king and he's saying all of this I don't know how this is going to end I'm going to trust you and I'm going to rejoice in God David did not deserve the grace of God and he knew it and so he's choosing to rest in that grace no matter what comes And so here's where we end as we look at Psalm 63 as a roadmap to praise. David is driven out to the desert. He's driven out to the wilderness largely due to his own sin. We've already seen that. Centuries later, from that very family line of David, Jesus will be born. And Jesus almost immediately will be driven out to 
a retreat from the king who is trying to kill him. So he ends up in Egypt, lives the first part of his life in exile as a refugee. As a grown man, Jesus is then led into the desert, into the wilderness, and he's tempted by Satan, and he's thirsty, and he's alone. And shortly thereafter, Jesus is driven out of the city, and he's driven up a hill. And it's not his own sin that has driven him out there, as is David's situation. It is our sin. It is the gospel. If you don't hear anything this morning, just know our sin has driven Jesus out over and over. And here he hangs on a cross, and our sin has led him there. But he takes on that sin, and he's buried, and he rises again. And the beautiful part of resting in our praise is that it is finished and it is complete. And what we could not do, Jesus has done for us. Amen. Amen. And so if you know that kind of rest, if you know that kind of rest, I just would challenge you to praise him. I would challenge you to express yourself to him in worship in ways that will say to him, you are glorious and great no matter what comes. I would challenge you to compare, hold up the things in your life and say, which is greater? I would ask you to remember and behold the glory of God that you have witnessed and seen in your own life and then rest. And if you don't know what any of this is like, I would invite you just to come forward during prayer time and say, I'm restless. I'm restless. Have no clue really what following Jesus means, what it looks like. And these people that will stand up here, they're not experts, they're not pastors actually. They're just men and women who have experienced the grace of God and they'll pray with you. And it'll be simple. And we don't, we're not gonna knock on your door this afternoon and say, all right, we're going to get baptized right now. We'll take our time, all right? But I would invite you, if you just go, I'm actually restless, that you would come and say, I want to follow Jesus this morning. Let's pray together. God, you speak to us. Your spirit is here and speaking, and you use the scriptures. And so as we open the Bible together, it's, these words jump off the pages. I pray that they, they have for all of us this morning. Lord, we long to praise you, not just in word, with our deeds, with our lives, with our priorities, and with our loves. May we be a people that really live a life of praise, and in doing so, we find the true joy we find fulfillment in glorifying you as we praise you thank you for the psalmist thank you for the scriptures thank you that you've spoken we pray these things in the name of jesus